Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the Internet has changed the way we communicate, access information, and even organize, which means concerns about digital privacy are concerns about privacy, period. In the wake of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, allowing for the criminalization of abortion, our ability to safely access information and health care online is in danger. How are tech companies responding? We'll hear from civil rights attorney Nora Benavides, senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press. Also on the show, it's good to be shocked by the news coming out of the January 6th committee. It's shocking. But suggesting that all of this is new and revelatory is a narrative that serves us poorly. For media, the test isn't so much how they are covering the hearings, but whether they're really incorporating the lessons into their regular coverage. That's going forward. But today we'll go back to the day after the insurrection when we spoke with political scientist Dorothy Benz. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. Common Dreams' Abby's Met reports the Austin American Statesman's release of horrific video from school security cameras documenting the May 24th massacre in Uvalde. Police, of course, decried the release, no doubt because it shows their multiple abject failures. But the Statesman says after a lot of thought, they determined we have to bear witness to history. Just not all of it. In a corner of the video, they note, quote, We have removed the sound of children screaming. We consider this too graphic. Close quote. Yes, one wouldn't want the murder of children while dozens of heavily armed officers slouch around, one stopping to put on hand sanitizer, others looking for keys to an unlocked door to upset anybody. Here's a New York Times correction from early July. Parse it if you can. Quote, An article on Thursday about Unilever's decision to sell Ben & Jerry's business after controversy surrounding the company's pledge to discontinue sales in the occupied West Bank described incorrectly the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. While most of the world officially considers the West Bank to be occupied and the settlements there illegal, there is no consensus that the occupation itself is illegal. Close quote. Just leave that one there. And finally, the Department of Health and Human Services is creating a new entity, the Office of Environmental Justice. It's a great overdue idea, but its impact won't depend on issuing earnest reports or calling for documentation of things we already know, but on the willingness to take on, among other things, the fossil fuel industry. A reminder that when the NAACP released a study a few years ago showing that more than one million black people live within a half mile of oil and gas wells and operations, and another 6.7 million live in counties with refineries, and that they face disproportionate exposure to pollution as a result, the American Petroleum's response was to say that health disparities have nothing to do with them and can be attributed to, wait for it, genetics. An agency that doesn't address that head-on will be of limited use. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. (music) 
The anticipated but still devastating Dobbs decision aims to take reproductive health care out of the hands of countless people, and it's already having that effect. But one might think, as terrible as that is, at least a person can go online to learn how to get to the nearest abortion access point or order pills from Canada. But the same social media platforms that constantly tell us they're about building community around and through demographic and geographic barriers are not showing up hard for those values when it comes to a free flow of information on abortion access. What are they doing and what might they do? We're joined now by Nora Benavides, civil rights attorney and the senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Nora Benavides. Hi, Janine. Thanks so much for having me. Well, maybe let's start with the shape of the problem. What are the concerns right now around data privacy that are generated specifically by this court ruling and other rulings around abortion access and its criminalization? What could happen or what do we see happening? From the outset, the gutting of Roe by Dobbs is so devastating for, of course, the constitutional reasons that At one time, Roe codified and and really affirmed that abortion was a basic right. Dobbs, in overruling that, overturning that, has laid open states to pick and choose whether they will allow abortion providers and individuals that kind of right. But we're in a very different moment now in 2022 than we were in the 1970s. And that's really because of the rise of the digital age. With it, as you mentioned in your opening, is that the internet is our primary pathway for almost everyone, I think, to information, to healthcare, to, you know, telehealth appointments. And so there are these huge questions now about how people will access both just information and then who is going to have access to that data that we are all of us engaging in and creating a footprint for. The number one concern is that basically anything we do on our devices is reachable and is collected, retained, even sold by data brokers. In this new post-Roe era, in the states where abortion is criminal now, which is in the dozens, Police and prosecutors will be able to buy information, both location and our search history, our app usage, to build criminal cases against women and providers of abortion. And so, the, I mean, it's really kind of a terrifying moment where privacy is, in a very new way, the entry point for our civil and basic rights. So in the face of that, what could social media platforms and and ISPs do? I mean, a a lot of them have these. uh, We understand they they simply are beholden to law enforcement. If if law enforcement or the government asks for information, they they hand it over. Uh, Is there something different that they could be doing in that regard? Yeah, well, you know, so let's start from what we already know. Platform companies are in the business of selling records to data brokers, to advertising firms. And a lot of what pre-Dobbs we've seen is that a lot of this information then allows platforms to target users 
with either content that they enjoy or content that otherwise discriminates, Mm -hmm. which is its own set of issues. In addition, companies can also be subpoenaed, as you say. They can be subpoenaed by prosecutors who might be wanting the whereabouts of people seeking reproductive health care. In the last year, Google has been forced to turn over its location information about its customers when law enforcement seek court orders for that information. What's been interesting is that actually in response to Dobbs, Google has updated its privacy policy to start deleting location data about users who visit places related to their health. My organization, Free Press, has been working on pressuring Google to modify its retention and collection practices. So this is a really huge step. It's it's some initial victory, but that's only one company. We've seen for the last several years, other companies like Amazon have put major sets of information together for law enforcement when they seek something through a search warrant, subpoena, other court orders. All of these are within the bounds of the law. The problem is that there's that additional layer that law enforcement can actually circumvent both court oversight and other Fourth Amendment concerns by buying our data from third parties. So when they don't want to go through the process of seeking a search warrant, a subpoena, or another court order, police can just circumvent it very easily. They can go through a data broker and pick and choose whatever they want to buy. Well, so what do we do in the face of this? I understand that there are certain legislative moves that are going on or being proposed. There has to be a way to address this. Yeah. Well, I always try to start with the individual and work my way up. Okay. And it's always important, I think, to help affirm for people that they can seek out information. There are really wonderful guidelines now for how to protect yourself online. And whether that is through encrypted apps, using a VPN, those are important things to start learning about. There are also then the much larger, what I call kind of systemic reforms that we need to be looking at. And as you say, some of that is through legislation. You know, Congress has currently a set of proposals before it that would limit what law enforcement can buy from data brokers. One of those bills is called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act. It's a long name, but it's a really good bill. And it closes a loophole that allows data brokers to sell our information to police without a warrant. There is going to be a hearing on this bill coming up this month. Uh, Free Press has endorsed the legislation. I think that we need a groundswell of support all over the country who are saying, yes, this is the kind of privacy protection we need. We also then need more. You know, we need other agencies throughout the federal government to step in. And one of those critical ones is the Federal Trade Commission, which is tasked with oversight over deceptive practices, the kinds of things that we've described today, where people's data has been sold, otherwise used in nefarious ways. And so the FTC has before it a really unique moment to look at abusive data practices and begin creating rules around how 
corporations can mitigate the harm to their customers and other consumers. So I hope that over the coming months, we are going to see the FTC take this on with an open and participatory process. It's one that we call a rulemaking, where they build a record of the harms, and then we begin developing the guardrails to prevent these kinds of deceptive, unfair practices. But we need all of these things, Mm -hmm. Janine. This isn't some distant threat. It isn't like women may at some point risk being prosecuted. This is already happening around the country. And so we need advocates to start telling these stories to help make the link that what we do online has very real world consequences. Well, first of all, it's so dystopian, the idea of our information being packaged and sold to begin with. And and it almost feels like, you know, shutting the barn door after the cows have escaped. Mm-hmm. Just bigger picture It makes me think about publicizing, nationalizing the Internet anyway. I mean, isn't it really a a public resource? And the idea of all of our information being essentially a commodity is just kind of terrifying big picture. I agree. I mean, and yet many times when I talk with people, their natural instinct is to say that the gathering of our data actually helps. Hmm. You know, there's this intuitive sense that whatever I do on Facebook actually can help make my experience more unique and personalized. Mm -hmm. And that may be true in some instances where you start getting ads for the types of local Facebook groups that you actually might want to join. I get that. What we have to start talking about is that there's that underbelly to what's really happening and that the Internet no longer serves people in the ways that we once thought it held such promise to connect us all, to make a more equitable future. In the middle of all of that, then, I just sort of think to myself, how do we talk about these issues to help people understand there are pros and there are very real trade-offs, very dangerous ones that really strip us of our own autonomy? If you're doing something online unaware of the trade-off, that as you search for something, that search result will be collected, stored, and even sold to someone, that isn't just about making your local Facebook group recommendations better or more exciting for you. That really removes any anonymity, which is something that throughout history, this country has been so committed to, at least in theory. You know, when the Founding Fathers dreamt up what the Fourth Amendment would be. It was early, early British rule where crown officials would storm into people's homes and take their writing and their other belongings because it was seen as potentially threatening to the crown. And so there's this old history of all of it being centered on power. And so what we're seeing now in the stripping of and the violations of our privacy all come back to the ways that our power has been taken from us. Well, I I guess I would say we do have a positive vision of an Internet that could have the good things that we want if we can build in these protections that help us in terms of privacy. We can have a positive vision going forward of of what the Internet could be that's kind of the way we thought of it, you know, hopefully many, many years ago. That can still happen, yeah? I think it can. And some of the work that excites me the most both in my own job at Free Press, the work I see across the country now from policymakers 
and allies on the ground throughout the country are people who are trying to dream up what a better internet would look like mm-hmm. and what real realized civil rights are online. One of the most exciting places that I've seen this is through the Disinformation Defense League, a network of over 230 local organizations around the country, either led by or centering communities of color. We are so often, I am a Latina, you know, I I work with groups that are considered typically on the fringes and otherwise not really at the table for large systemic conversations. Mm -hmm. And this network is one of the most exciting places that I have seen harvest and try to incubate great ideas for reform. That includes policy reform, privacy protections, civil rights protections online, things that can intervene to blunt what we see as harmful and discriminatory practices online. So I think that there is a future internet that we can realize, and we all need to have a voice and a seat at the table. We've been speaking with Nora Benavides from Free Press. They're online at freepress.net. Nora Benavides, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. The January 6th hearings are a critical moment in U.S. politics, but their lasting impact will have something to do with how media use the revelations to shape coverage going forward. Will they continue to present a party that accepts electoral results and one that doesn't as categorically similar? We were raising questions about press coverage on January 7th, 2021, when we spoke with writer, organizer, and strategist Dorothy Benz. Let's hear some of that conversation now. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is Masha Gessen's warning four years ago after Trump was elected when they said, believe the autocrat. And in the intervening four plus eternal years, as the left and as Black Lives Matter activists and immigrant rights advocates have raised the alarm over and over again about rising political violence, about the profoundly anti-democratic, racist policies of the administration, we have been called alarmists. We have been told it's not that bad. We have been told, you know, basically to, to calm down. And we could see this coming, as could anybody actually who's been on social media for the last three or four weeks. This violent piece of insurrection was planned openly on encrypted channels. There were, I saw yesterday on Twitter, there was merch. There were people in T-shirts that said Civil War, January 6, 2021. So unprepared and surprised is the last thing that anyone should have been, whether that's the Capitol Police or the media covering this story. Absolutely. Well, many people have noted, you know, refused to deny, you could say, that everything would have been different yesterday from beginning to end, including before yesterday, as you're noting, if these people were black or were brown or were disabled, you know, really anything but what they were. I would add that that would extend beyond the day, you know, had these been black people, there would be 
real world lasting repercussions for all black people, right? And if you complained, anyone, all anyone would need to say would be like 1621, man, you know. Mm -hmm. The point is talking about how differently they would have been treated if they were black, say, it's not a rhetorical exercise. It's not a game of what if, you know, that contrast is really the story, right? It is. And it goes well beyond the obvious I mean, so obvious that even some of the mainstream media has noted it, that Black Lives Matter activists would have been treated differently, that, you know, Native Americans defending their land and their legal rights who were water hosed in sub-freezing temperatures at Standing Rock were treated differently, that activists who were just begging their senators not to kill them by eliminating their health care were ripped out of wheelchairs and thrown in handcuffs. I mean, yes, those are the obvious differences as opposed to the kid glove treatment that that the white nationalists got yesterday. But the deeper problem is really the entire white nationalist project that, you know, as you alluded to in the introduction, this whole venture rests on the fact that the police were so-called unprepared. I saw that word several times in the media coverage. It's not that they were unprepared, it's that they were prepared for white nationalists, which to them is not a crisis in the same way that black people demanding rights is, or that people insisting that public health care and national health care should be a thing. The problem goes much deeper there, and it is both a problem of how we have governed and a problem of how the police and the military have been central to white supremacy. Structurally, foundationally, ideologically, the function of the police has always been to defend the system as it exists, and the system is a white supremacist system. The ruling power started 500 years ago with settler colonizers. It went on to include genocide, slavery, strike-breaking in the capitalist, in the more modern capitalist era. It has never included defending democracy. That is a central understanding of, of how the police work. They weren't overwhelmed. You know, they knew. They just didn't think it was a problem. It is difficult to grapple with the language around here. We're in kind of new territory, but what we do see is a, an unwillingness to use the terms white nationalist, to use white supremacist in connection with this kind of thing. And I think it is part of media's desire to splinter people off to say this really is a fringe and discourage the connections between these people and, in fact, the mainstream of the Republican Party and of many U.S. institutions. I think that that is absolutely right. There's kind of two things going on there in that I would call it a soothing effort to make this not a bigger problem, right? The larger problem is not contextualizing it in white supremacy. The larger problem is not admitting that the entire American project is a white supremacist project. You know, the media did point some fingers at Donald Trump yesterday, rightly, but they seem to exempt almost wholly the entire rest of the Republican Party. This morning on the New York Times' homepage, at least on the app, they had a bunch of quotes, and they were all from Republicans, making them look really principled. You know, Graham, McConnell, and, and, and Leffler saying, you know, well, this isn't the right thing to do, as if these people hadn't been feeding this same right-wing monster for the last four years, not to mention the last four weeks. Right. So that's like one way in which 
the media is trying to create a respectable-looking set of Republicans in the middle of what is not that. The other is not talking about the larger shift here, which is the assault on democratic norms and the assault on democracy itself, which has moved from sort of a cloaked phase, you know, voter ID laws that we pretend are just about voter fraud or that are somehow, you know, facially neutral or whatever, mass incarceration, which, you know, disenfranchises and creates second-class citizenship for, you know, millions and millions of people, moving away from that cloaked phase to this really overt phase and, and kind of testing what works. Like, well, let's throw some lawsuits at it. Let's try that. Let's try to, like, directly shake down some officials and threaten them. Okay, let's try that. You know, in, in, uh, in October, Representative Mike Lee floated the term rank democracy, you know, as if, there is such a thing as too much democracy, like, you know, don't let the unwashed actually vote. And that's exactly what it is. And that is actually both a point of continuity and discontinuity with the entire American project. It has never been a country that is a democracy, a true democracy, in the sense of a universal franchise, let alone economic and social democracy. But it has pretended for a long time that it is. And what the right is doing now is testing even that pretense, see how they can proceed. And that is a genuine fascist threat. And that's the danger of portraying this as marginal or fringe or failed, right? Portraying it as a failed attempt because, as you and others have said, that failure doesn't mean the end of it. No, absolutely not. I mean, yes, the, I've seen a couple of headlines about like, well, Trump's on his way out anyway. And, you know, this morning as I was listening to NPR, the reporter or the anchor said, well, what did they think they would accomplish? You know, like they were talking about some, some kids on a playground. And it's it's not, you know, that they failed at overturning the election. It's that they succeeded in mainstreaming fascism and fascist tactics. That's really the point, and I haven't seen that anywhere um, in the mainstream media coverage. That was Dorothy Benz speaking with Counterspin the day after the insurrection of January 6, 2021. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group FAIR, based in New York. If you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.